Good morning. This is Mark Steiner. Welcome back here to the Mark Steiner Show and your source for cool jazz and more. WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. And as many of you know, a week from Monday will be our last program here on WEAA, um, and, uh, which is unfortunate in many ways. But we are going to continue. And, you know, now at the bottom of the show, we have at steinershow.org, we'll continue our podcast. We have a lot of new community projects we'll be working on in the city and around the country that we're going to get up off the ground. Uh, so we'll be staying in touch, and our program will still be alive and out there, but in a different form. And uh, to celebrate uh, the future and to talk about what's happening in our world today are two of my favorite people in studio, and one by phone, all of whom have been guests in the show for many years now and whose minds I respect deeply. So three doctors from my sick just call in. Just kidding. So we have <laughs> Dr. Ronnie Ellington joins us. She's an associate professor of mathematics education here at Morgan State University, and has come on the show to talk about all manner of things, not just math and education. Ronnie, good to see you. Thanks, Mark. Dr. Raymond Winbush is in the house as well. He's director of the Institute for Urban Research here at Morgan State University and uh, author of numerous books. Uh, right, about to publish a new one and uh, getting ready to rewrite an old one. And Ray, good to have you back in the house. Hey, man. <laughs> good to see you. Another published author in the house as well. Uh, he has written Stare in the Darkness, Hip Hop and the Limits of Black Politics and Knocking the Hustle Against the Neoliberal Turn in Black Politics. He, uh, of course, I'm talking about Dr. Lester Spence, who's Associate Professor of Political Science and Co-Chair of the Africana Studies Program, uh, Center for Africana Studies at Johns Hopkins University, uh, and uh, joins us by phone because he's out of town. And Lester, welcome. Good to have you with us. Uh, it's good to be here, virtually. <laughs> virtually. <laughs> yeah. 410-319-8888 is a number to join in on the conversation. I know you know what we're going to talk about yet, but you'll find out in a minute. Or you can email us at talkatsteinershow.org or tweet us at Mark Steiner. A couple of things. I'd like to start locally and go national. Um, the things, here's what's on my mind, and y'all can just bring up whatever you like as well because, of, you know, we can just roll with it. But so locally, t- there are two things. A is that video that was just released that many of you have seen of the police officer who was planting drugs that you posted on your Facebook page, Ray, uh, that, that <laughs> planting drugs in, in a small alleyway. The man who was arrested for that crime, alleged, alleged crime, uh, has been in jail for six months because he can't afford the $50,000 bail. And there's also, um, on the local level here, uh, the, um, the march, the, the, the weekend that's being pushed, the ceasefire weekend, um, for a week from mm-hmm. this weekend, um, and it's picking up steam around the city. Um, and we can talk a bit about that. There's an interesting juxtaposition there for me that we can talk about. Nationally, what I've been thinking about is two things that just happened recently, and they're connected by family and by Trump. Um, <laughs> so, not my family. So, <laughs> Betsy DeVos, who's Secretary of Education, mm-hmm. is speaking in front of ALEC, which is the right wing corporate funded. Uh, organization that writes legislation around the country to, in, in one level to uh, privatize our public education system. Uh, and her family's company would benefit from that if that happened because that's their business. Uh, a. And B um, is her brother, whose name is Eric Prince, who runs uh, the private armies across the globe. Uh, and they are now lobbying Trump and uh, with Steve Bannon to take uh, the military out of Afghanistan and replace them with a contract army that they would install. So there's a bunch of things. Well, let's start local. Now, Ray, you started, you posted this piece <laughs> about the officer who planted, uh, allegedly, seemingly planted. Look, he planted. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to be objective here. <laughs> I mean, I, sometimes I roll over in my seat about how we, you know, the media phrases things right, that right, are so right. obvious, <laughs> right. you, know, you know, they're telling us. We'll talk about Trump later, but, you know, he planted the drugs. Uh, There's no doubt about it. I mean, and he was unintelligent enough (laughs) to keep his body cam on, which really, you know, means that he needs to get an IQ test right after this. But I think what it does, it continues, not starts, but it continues to destroy any faith that the average Baltimorean, particularly if you're black, has in the system of what is called policing in the city. You know, we're fond of talking about the, the what, what I call the bad apple theory, mm-hmm. that there's one bad apple. I mean, this is a culture. Mm-hmm. And, and, it, and it's a culture that apparently, you know, encourages falsifying evidence, planning evidence. And then we'll hear something, of course, about 
the background of the person that was arrested, which we already have, will make him look bad, um, as opposed to talking about the police officer that did something illegal. So, you know, it's just another, you know, witch's brew of how policing in Baltimore and around the country just has an incredible credibility gap with uh, the black community and the, uh, the cities. No, and I, I turned to Ronnie and then go to Lester. I mean, when I, 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 my, one of my producers and I looked at that video yesterday and we slowed it down and just hit mm-hmm. it frame by frame to see what happened. Mm-hmm. And clearly the coke can was picked up. That's right. And a bat, some cellophane bag was in his hand that looked like the same cellophane bag that he picked up later with drugs in it. Mm-hmm. And then the can was put back down there. They walked out, opened up his right. body cam, then walked back into the alley and picked it up. And took it from there, Ronnie. I don't. I love. I, <laughs> you're not usually speechless. I am speechless <laughs> because it, it, I, I'm with Ray with this. You know, we say allegedly, like this. This whole people getting shot on camera, and, and it's allegedly. And right, right. I mean, what does it really take? for the police officers to really be scrutinized in certain ways without this, well, maybe kind of, it's alleged, we saw it, now what? See, that's really what I want to see, what's going to happen? And looking historically at people being on video shooting black folks, this is this is low-level planting, it's right. like compared to shooting people in cold blood, <laughs> you know, just to, just to traumatize us further to say, you can plant drugs, you can shoot us, eh, you still get this kind of pass, if you will. So I, I don't have any words for this. I'm just, they just getting brazen, just do whatever. And they know there's no repercussions. And I'm just saddened by the whole anything. Lester? Mm. Lester, you so, go ahead. So the it. reason I'm out of town is because <laughs> I'm in uh, North Carolina presenting at Chapel Hill at a conference on intersectionality. And in about an hour and a half, maybe two hours, I'm actually presenting on intersectionality as it appears in the police, uh, in policing in Baltimore. So this is kind of weird confluence. So uh, so how do we think about intersectionality or how do we think about other issues uh, out, uh, if, if folding into, uh, how do we fold other issues into the, the racial analysis of this? Well, the first thing I, I'd say is that um, what's important is that the person this happened to is black, is male, but is working class and working class and probably poor, right? So, what happens in Baltimore, like where a city like Ferguson uses police to collect revenue and like taxes and fining, in a city like Baltimore, policing is used as a tool of social control to protect certain segments from Baltimore from other segments. So the reason a police officer does this isn't because he's stupid. Uh, what, but the second thing Dr. Wimbush, uh, not the second, but one of the things Dr. Wimbush said was that this is a culture, right? Mm-hmm. So the reason the police officer can do this with his body camera on is because it's so much of a normal action for him that the presence of the body camera doesn't really matter, right? So just think about the reality TV show. Like these, like these, these, these folks are um, on camera 24 hours. Maybe the first couple of hours they're on these TV shows, they act different because they know the camera's there. But after a while, they revert to their standard norms and procedures, mm-hmm. right? So this is what we see happening here. Now, the reason why there's going to be a serious concern as to whether, A, the individual police officer will be punished or B, this culture can be dealt with, is because the population of folks that policing in Baltimore is really used against, is used primarily against black, poor, men in one way, women in another. Mm -hmm. The reason why that stuff is so uh, prevalent is because there's a sizable population in Baltimore, and because capital in Baltimore actually believes that they need to be secure from them. And it's important to note that when you talk about race and class together, what you what that enables you to talk about is a reality that is not just is is the there are some segments of black Baltimore that actually want this to happen. They believe oh, yeah. that they're kept secure from that population by the police doing exactly what they're doing. I, I, I agree with that. 
so, you know, when you look at that and you look at where we are in the city, in a city like Baltimore, um, and, you know, yesterday we did a program about a national report that looked at 10, 12 different cities around the country. Um, and the story in Baltimore is no different than the story in Hartford, Connecticut, or the story in Atlanta, Georgia, or even the story in places like New York City, right. um, in, in black and brown neighborhoods in New York City. So that was one of the things that was kind of clearly pointing out there, connections like this. And I was reading an article this morning about um, uh, from the New Yorker uh, about a young man from Oakland who was put in prison uh, from his cousin who's writing a report and he just got out of prison and she used the word she said you know the, the, and poor inner city neighborhoods she called them parastates not parasites but parastates within themselves dystopian almost isolated uh, which is why you have the gang structure that you've got and everything else that's going on and the, the desperation inside and you have people like, uh, like, uh, uh, well, let me get through this woman's name right, Erica Bridgeford, who is the one who is organizing this operation, or a ceasefire for the weekend coming up, saying, and she's actually walking from corner to corner talking to young men, saying, for this weekend, can we have no killings and no shootings? Can we stop for, this, for these 72 hours? So, and to me, I mean, there's a direct connection here. And so there's a, there's a connection about what society has to do to end the way that we function especially vis-a-vis black and brown poor working class communities and black and brown communities in general, and, and B, the reality of what people live through because of the history of racism in our country and the class. So, I mean, so, so how do we put those two together and, and, yeah, see, in, a, in, a, in a conversation? Well, I'm very proud of her efforts of, of that, you know, don't shoot nobody this weekend. But my concern is that it, it, it shifts the focus because when we talk about systemic racism and how it impacts police brutality, it becomes as well, y'all kill each other, so why are you talking, right? So when you say, you know, I've, I was reading this article about, you know, there's always white on white crime, black on black crime. But it, it's, it's, if you're in an area with the, your people, then you tend to uh, have criminal activity with those people. So even though we're selling black, black people in the city, okay, don't shoot nobody on the weekend, I think what I think it will do is then give people ammunition to say, well, if y'all are shooting each other and say somebody does, then we can overlook the systemic reasons and causes that even perpetuate blacks killing each other, the mentality that promotes that and the systemic oppression that causes people to feel like, you know, in a bubble. So they, their frustrations are taken out on those around them. So again, I, I like the effort of, okay, let's not shoot anybody this weekend, but I don't want it to take away from, well, there's a real systemic reasons. Like we're dealing with the effects and not the cause. And yeah. That's no, no, Ronnie. What you said is so important because, you know, and, and you know, and I, I will participate yeah. at whatever level I can in the ceasefire. But I, I think that what it does is what you exactly <laughs> what you said is that it takes us away from much, much larger problems, class issues that Lester <laughs> mentioned a few um, minutes ago. The whole issue of racism and the system. We're looking at some data at the institute now. And we found that the lowest time when there was quote black on black crime a term I don't like to use mm-hmm. was during enslavement because they had black folk under control uh, and and part of this is you know us saying well you know it's better have a ceasefire weekend to really look and then to look at these big things because these big things are harder to solve they aren't mm-hmm. and there's examples in our history of big things being solved changing systems I mean we can point to what Dr. King did we can point to the women's right to vote and all of these things like that but now the society is becoming extremely what I call just societal laziness in dealing with these bigger problems like the one at 16 Pennsylvania Avenue but that's another yeah I just don't want it to become a distraction and like I said I I applaud the efforts I'm with Ray whatever I can do we're supposed to be having a thing at our spiritual center to commemorate it all of that but I just as as we talk about it it's like wait a minute we're talking about effects and not causes and then so let's say it's successful then when people will they point to that and say see if we tell you not to shoot anybody you won't shoot that's gonna solve the problem you see it's gonna become this kind of simplistic just right. don't shoot nobody. You know what I'm saying? Right. I'm like, it's so much more complex than that. As just to, say no. Yeah, just <laughs> it's yeah. right up there. Thank you, right. Lester. Yeah, yeah. And so here's a, here here are, here's the thing. Um, whether it's Baltimore or Chicago or it's Detroit or it's St. Louis, 
I mean, people, usually black people, and then being more specific, usually black women, have been have been trying to have, have been dealing with violence and how to stave it off since. You know, so so one of the things this type of focus does it, it actually takes the it actually makes it seem as if folk haven't been doing anything exactly. so there's a, so I, i'm gonna get to the systemic thing because i agree with it in a second and add another element to it but it's it's not like black folk and uh, like these moms and these sisters and um and in some cases brothers haven't been doing anything mm. right i mean so and then and then secondarily some of this stuff some of the stuff that folks have been doing has actually been kind of uh, have have been far more attuned to systemic and institutional stuff than the symbolic stuff, right? So one of the brothers here at this conference I'm at, Earl Henderson, he was really um, influential in the gang ceasefire that led up to the Million Man March in the mid-90s, right, where you actually took gangs and got them together to actually create the form of peace treaties, right? And that, so if it, so thinking about that approach is a step up from some a kumbaya thing like let's not kill one another, right? Mm-hmm. But the but the last thing I'd say is that what that first what the the leading story implies, and this is something we already know, but you catch it, is that the police are actually creating the problem they're claiming to mm. solve. That's right. So if you take that element. We really don't know how much of the spike in violence that's occurring is the result. Like one argument could be that the police have actually kind of informally implied that they're not going to police this stuff anymore. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But the second argument, and I'm not I am not one for conspiracy theories at all. I am not the conspiracy theory guy. I've never been that guy. But the second argument is that the police may actually be involved in the spike in a little, in, in, in more of a kind of duplicitous manner, <coughs> right? And certainly with something like COINTELPRO, we've got a model for that. Well, so, right, so, th- so these are things that, that, and given, these are things that we actually have to kind of take seriously. Well, Lester, I, I, look, I'm agreeing with you. I am a conspiracy theorist, and I always tell my students that, you know, if you're not a conspiracy theorist, you got to be a coincidence theorist. And and yeah. Um, yeah. there's evidence in Chicago, and I've talked to you know people in Chicago who say that the police are encouraging these spikes in murders by paying, literally paying one gang money and extortion money from one gang, drug gang, yeah. to another drug gang. So it's not just possibly <laughs> right. a conspiracy at all. Not at all. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. It's horrible. Yeah, I, I, believe, I, I believe that. Yeah. So then... W- <laughs> it's bad out there, Mark. I know. <laughs> the question is, where do you take this both politically and in terms of community? I mean, if you... I mean, a lot of people in the station here, where we are, are wearing the ceasefire T-shirts that the, the, the sister put out there for mm-hmm. this weekend, and you're seeing them all over the place. People are wearing them because people are tired of living in the kind of violence they're forced to live in every day. Whether they're fear of getting arrested for something they didn't do, or getting shot by some guys having an argument on the corner, people are just tired of the stuff that's around them. So this woman comes up with this idea to try to do something to to keep the beast actually talking to young guys in the corner, which I think is a big difference, actually talking to the young men themselves. But I agree with that this can kind of obfuscate the larger issues of the systemic racism and of the and, and, and of how we organize society and how Baltimore's organized to allow this to continue. So the question how does that how do you how do you approach that politically? Because what changes yeah, it is a political some kind of political move, some social political move, a movement that can change that dynamic. Well, so what happens? So what happens is you take a moment like this, right? And nobody could have predicted that something like this would catch, like you know, the ceasefire thing would catch, like it has, you know, based on the, the symbolic stuff you talk about, and people who actually have a, a, have a different kind of a richer understanding of the institutional and political dynamics that 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 kind of spur on violence, what they do is they take advantage of this moment where people maybe are more open to talking, where people, you know, assuming that the spike is gang related, that is assuming that you're talking about folks who are directly or indirectly involved in different gangs in, the, uh, in Baltimore, 
um, taking violent, you know, in, engaging in violence against one another, then what you do is you use that, that, exa- that this thing, this wave, to have conversations a couple of levels up. So, it's, so along with talking to folks just who are just on the corners, what you do is you're talking to people higher up the food chain, and then you're, you're organized. And again, there are models. Right. The, the people actually came up Whether you're talking about Los Angeles in the mid 90s and stuff spread. I think they had them in Detroit. Like you actually generate treaties and generate some type of model of enforcement. And then you embed um, like political train, political education into that. So people can then segue out and begin to understand their gangs as something a bit more than gangs. I'm, you know, I try not to be pessimistic about this stuff. You know, like, you know, I, I'm not sure. And again, I applaud the sister for what she's doing and will help at any level I can about just being there. Um, but then I I guess as a, a, a social scientist, I ask myself, what is success measured by this weekend? Like, if no one gets killed, I guess that would be a success. If someone gets killed... Is that success? And if the same, roughly same amount of people get killed, is that a failure? Again, you got to connect it with the political. You know, I think sometimes, you know, elected officials should just admit we really don't know what we're doing right now. And to tell the the public (laughs) that they will never do that, but they should say we need help at any level. We need help with our police department planning drugs. We need help with gang violence in the city. We need help with, you know, how snitching doesn't mean what it did 30 or 40 years ago in the black community. Oh, you know, things like this. And again, there are some models out there uh, that Lester mentioned that have worked, and we need to be willing to investigate those type of things. Yeah, I mean, I think, we, we, before we take a break here, I think that, I mean, I think there, one of the things we talked about yesterday in this program was the, the idea that we need to reallocate money the way money is being spent in a community like Baltimore, any community, mm-hmm. how controlling the money. Someone said to me the other day that only 13 percent, I think, I have this right, of the money that goes into communities is comes from this philanthropic center. The rest mm-hmm. is all either tax money mm-hmm. or it's federal and state money that's in the city, and mm-hmm. and how we spend it. How do we spend our TANF money? How do we spend the CDBG money? How do we spend the money that in, in our government? How do we divide it up? Who makes those decisions? Where does it go? Does it go to the police? Does it go to rehabbing housing and put, putting people to work? I mean, people have to begin to push, I think, how we invest the money in the city, our money, yeah. the community money. I mean, I think that's that's part of it. I mean, it, it's 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 part of a, it's about a political movement, I think, if things are going to change. Well, why isn't Title VI ever enforced where it says that any money flowing into a city for the feds has to have something <laughs> Uh, input from community members. And on that note, we want your input at 410-319-8888. Join in. What do you think of these things we've been talking about? We'll talk about some other things next half hour, but bring up whatever you'd like. 410-319-8888. You can tweet us at Mark Steiner. Send an email to talk at org. We want to hear your thoughts and ideas. It's about our city. 410-319-8888. <laughs> Welcome back, folks. This is Mark Steiner. Good to have you with us here on The Mark Steiner Show and your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. We're here with Dr. Lester Spence and Dr. Ray Winbush and Dr. Ronnie Ellington as we continue our conversation. Let me open the phones first at 410-319-8888 to get your thoughts and ideas. Um, and, I, and, well, I'll come back to what one of the things Ray said during the break because I think it's really important to wrestle with. But let me uh, get to the phones first. And, Jay, you're on the air. Welcome. Your panel. Good morning, Jay. I appreciate you. Thank you. Um, I was just wanted to um, ask your panel, ask you and your panel to uh, ruffle with this one. Do you think that the spike and the and the violence and everything is orchestrated so we can lock up get who uh, some of the citizens that are model citizens? And they believe everything that they see on the TV and the news. And to try to scare them out of the city, to try to uh, boost the prices up, you know, the property, start buying all the property and build it. And you know what I'm saying? Just to move all the blacks out of the city because everybody in the streets, they scared. 
You know what I mean? It's it's and it seems like there's no end. Nobody has an answer. And it seems like that it's orchestrated like it's it's a it's a um what you call it? Uh, um organized confusion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's organized confusion on the on the surface everybody think it's mayhem, but in reality the people at the top know what's going on. And the thing is to try to clear the streets of what they consider us to be riffraff and to start boosting like what they're doing now at the Port uh what's that, Port Discovery? Port, Port Covington. Port Covington. Port Covington. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Port Covington. So they're trying to, you know, spike up the cost of living, the prices and everything. You know, I just I take the answer off the air. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, it's a good question. It's a good question, brother, because I heard an elected official a couple of years ago, and I'm not going to name her, but she said in a public forum that one of the goals of Baltimore was to keep this, uh, uh, to turn the city into Eds and Meds. And my mother always taught me to write down the expressions that I mm-hmm. didn't understand, and I figured it out before the end of the meeting that she was talking about educational institutions and medical institutions. Um you know, the joke is that, you know, Prince George's County is D.C.'s ninth ward now. And black folk in that city, as we know, has have moved out mm-hmm. or been forced out. We know the gentrification mm-hmm. is all over. I was in New York City this past weekend and went to Brooklyn. There's whole areas of Brooklyn that just 10 years ago were black. So the idea that gentrification is like some part of an overall conspiracy, if you please, I think it's a reality. And I think also, as the, as the brother just said, I think when we talk about systems analysis, we got to look at stuff like gentrification, stuff mm-hmm. like police department. But we also have to look at these things like we know now and have known for years that lead in the environment increases violence. And, and people say, well, how do you deal with these bigger problems? And a lot of people simply don't want to deal with it because they are considered as being just far too big for us to handle. Uh, you know, I, I think about what, what Jay was just saying, too. I mean, when you – just like a quick little anecdote here, and then Lester and Ronnie, please jump in. We'll go to the next caller. That, that we may not get to Trump today, but that's okay. <laughs> I'm tired of talking about that boy anyway. So anyhow, so <laughs> we focus too much on him and not on the reality of what's going on there. Anyhow, I, I was at a meeting. This was last year when I was helping a nonprofit group think through what they were doing with the next stage of their work. And we were meeting at the top floor of a building downtown that overlooked the east side of Baltimore. It was a, corp, it was a legal office, if I remember correctly. And so I walked into this guy's office with the, uh, the person who ran this particular nonprofit, and he was on her board, I assume, and he was looking out the window, and I'll never forget this. He was looking out the window, and he pointed down and said, as soon as we get rid of that, we'll be able to, take, we'll be able to go from Hopkins the, into the harbor. Mm-hmm. And I went, excuse me, what does that mean? Or we get rid of what? And he said, those places down there, and he was talking about the low rises, mm-hmm. where black folks live in public housing, let's get rid of that, we can redevelop it, and we can get to the harbor. So, I mean, so when people think about, is there a conspiracy to move black folks out? And, and, and the, so, it, whether that those things are true, conspiracy are true or not, right. there's a reason why people feel that way because of that reality. That's right. And that is a reality. That's right. And so that I means that that's, you know, uh, and nobody cares about. People at top don't care about poor folks, especially don't care about poor black folks in the city. And, you know, and what happens? I have to say this. I was watching a video by Claude Anderson. I love him. He he goes straight to the hill. He don't play no games. And he talked about uh, before Detroit. I think he was talking about Chicago, Detroit. I can't remember. But it's Detroit. It's Detroit. And he talked about how he he was going in with these meetings and he had had black business people ready to go to um, do some work and, and, you know, gentrify. And they told him, no, that would be racist. Now, the, he said, no, you can't just have black businesses come. No, they said they, talk, they shut it down. Mm-hmm. And he said that was interesting because other communities were galvanizing and coming in and bringing in business, and that was okay. But as soon as he started to galvanize black right. folks, it was, a, it was now racist. Exactly. So that mentality, I say that to say there's a particular mentality of when black folks try to build something that's self-sustaining, that's racist all of a sudden. But when someone says, oh, we just want Hopkins to be from the rooter to the tutor, that's called progress. That's right. Right. So the way we even frame the discussion 
it tells us exactly what the agenda is. I thought that was amazing. I mean, he said they were like, no, well, you can't do that. And he had people ready to go who would relocate to Detroit, would come and build it up. And they were like, uh-uh, that you can't do it. You can't do it. Now, wh- how do you explain that? Well, I explained, you know, it's amazing. Last weekend, we had a private meeting here on campus with Claude Anderson in it. Oh, he was there? Yeah, he was on campus right over in the new business center. And we talked for a whole weekend, 15 of us. And and one of the things that you've got to look at, we have our little Italy's here in Baltimore around the country. We have Chinatowns around Baltimore. We have Greek towns here. Where's the little Africa? And that's what he wanted to do mm-hmm. in Detroit, but mm. that was considered as being a racist, racist thing. move. Exactly. I- right. Right. So you want to jump in before we hit the phones again, Lester? Uh, no, I'll take a uh, call. Okay. Cool. Four one zero three one nine eighty eight eighty eight. Let us go now to John. You're on the air, line three. Hey, hello. Good morning, John. You're on the air. Hey, how you doing, man? Very well. Okay, so I was listening to you. Have a very, very, very good discussion going on this morning, man. Um, all right, so. I work for the government. I've been working for the government for like 15 years, and uh, I'm also a mobile barber, and I've been cutting hair for over 20 years. So majority of my customers are in Baltimore City, um, and I cut a lot of our um, our youth. So a lot of those customers are between the ages of like 13 to like in their early 20s. And uh, the violence that we're seeing now in the city. I mean, things are changing even for me. Like, I don't even carry cash on me when I'm in the street anymore. I try to have most of my customers pay with the swipe. Um, but of course, you know, your younger customers, your teenagers, they're always paying with cash. Mm-hmm. And when I'm in the street, I don't really see or hear a lot about gangs as far as that's why we have a lot of violence. I hear more about the individual that retaliating against another individual or another group of people. Um, these kids today, they, they're off the hook. I mean, it's like nowadays, these kids, the guns are so accessible. They, they get a gun, and they have this, I'm not working for anybody mentality. No one's going to tell me what to do mentality. I'm going to do what I want to do mentality. And, and they're out here, and they're committing these crimes. Uh, and I and I hear it all the time, and I try to talk to the young brothers because I'm 45. So I try to talk to the young brothers and tell them, you know, you can't just kill people like that. That's just not how it goes. You you guys have to talk things out, and uh, you know, they hear you, but then they only hear you for that second. And when you're gone, whatever you said to them just goes right out the door. I think the problem is mainly it's just too many guns on the street. It's in a in a way too easy. They're way too easy to get. You can get a gun today probably just as quick as you can get a pack of cigarettes. I, I mean, so, it's just, right. It's now, now, John, I think you, you raise somebody, and I mean, you hear that all the time from people in the community. I mean, guns are just everywhere. They're ubiquitous. Lester, you want to pick up on that point? Yeah. How old is John? Are you still on the line? John's still there, yeah. Yes. How old are you? He said 45. I'm 45. He's 45, so he's my age. Right. So um, I'm, I've got uh, I've got a graph with Baltimore homicides by year. I'm looking at it in front of me. Uh, 1993, you had over 350 homicides. So I think I I I think everything that John said, I'd agree with, except right. So as soon as we start talking about these kids today are or this thing today is right, because when John was talking, the first thing I went back to was me growing up in, uh, in and around Detroit in the mid-'80s where it was like every party we went to got shot up, right? I'm 48, right? So the, the challenge, and we don't want to reproduce the idea that these kids are somehow culturally different or somehow got some different thing. Because, again, I'm looking, at, I'm looking at the graph right now. Um, what are we? How many homicides have we had this year? 180 some. I don't know the exact number. 188. Yeah, 180 yeah. some. So if we hit, let's say we hit 360, right? In 1993, we had more than 350, right? And I'm looking at the graph now. So, so the only thing I would say is when we're talking about this, we don't want to reproduce the idea that these kids are somehow differentially unable to resolve conflict, or these kids are somehow have more access to guns or these kids are somehow more willing to use a gun. Cause I don't think that's what's going I don't think that's what's going on. 
And then that's not what the data says. And that's not that's not that's not what's going on again in, in, in other places. Yeah. And I also want to say that, um, you know, this whole idea of systemic powerlessness, when one feels powerless, violence is their recourse. So we got to understand psychology that when people feel powerless to address their own concerns, needs, etc. that you say, just talk it out. Well, that's a skill set that you have to know. If the system is not, if you look at the school systems, I'm an educator, the schools, there's nowhere in the school system where we're really trading people to be self-empowered, except for my African-centered schools. There are certain schools that do that. But as a systemic initiative of teaching kids how to actually be powerful, not forceful, where is that training? So we talk about, well, you should just go talk it out. Well, as a grown person who's 47, it's taken me years just to learn how to talk it out with a person I'm with, much less <laughs> somebody I'm having. It. You know what I mean? So let's talk. We just say these like, oh, it's just easy to do that. That takes training. That takes commitment. That takes spiritual grounding. That takes a purpose for you to even want to do that. So we got to stop putting these like platitudes out there. Oh, these kids are this way. First of all, when you are powerless, you do not have access for the skills to actually move something forward because you feel powerless. Well, I just shoot you. That's all I got. It's not. So I think we make things so simple and the system perpetuates that in No Child Left Behind. There's no discussion of empowering kids. None. Not mm. one conversation None. is all about who's accountable, who's not. Right. You. So it, you expect these students coming through these systems to just have skill sets to interact yeah. Come on, I just it, find it, we just say this, but I'm telling you as a grown, a nice and grown person, you know, luckily there was no guns around when certain people got on my nerves and I just had a lot to, at stake so I wouldn't shoot you. But the truth is that is not simple. This right idea of being with other people who don't share views with you, dealing with conflict, understanding other people as, as sovereign, divine beings that you can respect, that's that's a high level of spiritual acumen. So let's not just make it simplistic and expect our kids to just know how to do that. Right. So I just had to put that out there. We just toss these words no, like it's, it's, imp it's important. I, I was saying what you said. I went right to phone to what you said right during the break. And that there's a connection here to me. You know, when when we, the, this country is, in, is, is deteriorating mm -hmm. in many ways, and yeah, I think yeah. in some ways we have when you have a society who's had this beautiful democratic vision when it was written, mm -hmm. but it was hollowed out from the beginning because it was based on, economically based on the enslavement of Africans mm -hmm. and the annihilation of native people, and this, <laughs> and who, indigenous people here. That And the, and now it's kind of the, the, the rot at the core is seeping through the very structure. And it's rugged individualism. Mm -hmm. And capitalism yeah. can no longer answer these questions. And right. so and so if you look, if you look at, at, at if the studies I've read and about um, both native communities and African communities uh, before enslavement and genocide. Mm -hmm. um, violence took a different, very different turn. It was very little violence internally mm -hmm. in communities. Those were external things. Between, wars took place, mm -hmm. but they not internally. Right. And then if you read the history of enslavement in America, there was a lot of violence on the plantation mm -hmm. from the master, from the people who owned people, but also internally because people were so stuck. Right. That's in, the power you know, that I'm talking so about. That, yeah. so, so this is not – that historical context to me is important. Oh, it's always well, important. Well, Go ahead, Les. Yes. Yes, it is. But at the same time, there's a way – if we talk about that historical context and we take too broad an approach, yeah. we're not able to understand the very – so, again, looking at that graph, there's a big spike between uh, 2013 and now, right? So, yeah, so we've got this large tendency, right – and then we've got these individual dynamics in these specific moments, right? That we have right. to kind of, we have to take the big picture, but at the same time, understand the individual dynamics are going on in the space, because otherwise we get lost. And that's what I was saying about just this human relations, what it means to actually engage with people without violence is a skill set. It's not just something you just do. And that's my point, right. that there are, you have to be trained how to deal and interact with people. In ways that don't promote violence, whether it's physical violence, emotional violence, sexual violence, that is how people who are powerless feel powerful. It's a psychological thing. Uh, and then to be yep. subjected to a system that undermines you, mm -hmm. you got to have some skills to do that. That's all I'm just pointing to. I'm way back to the phones, Ray. You want to say, you want to jump in at all? Go ahead. Go to yeah. the phone. <laughs> I want to hear from people. Four, oh, did we just lose the police officer called in? 
All right. Well, if you if you call back in, we'll get you on the air. Four one zero. I want you to hear your thoughts. I, just, your name popped up and just disappeared. <laughs> uh, f- but we'd love to hear your thoughts. Four one zero three one nine eighty eight eighty eight. The next caller up is Ryan in Baltimore. You're on the air. Oh uh, hey. Good morning. Uh, I really appreciate the conversation you guys are having. It's real great. I just wanted to real quick just say my support for Erica Bridgeford and LNG. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I I just react a little bit against the idea that the ceasefire is a kumbaya moment. I think if you guys look into a little more of what Erica Bridgeford and LNG do, you know, they're doing incredible work in the community every day. Mm-hmm. The ceasefire is like one thing, and it's creating a conversation. It's creating just a movement and a little bit of hope. So I think it's, you know, it's not exactly, it's not like as simple as a kumbaya moment. I mean, these women are working every day to do big things in the community all the time. I mean, Erica Bridgeford, you know, is over at uh, Baltimore Community Mediation right. doing work against violence every day. So that's all I wanted to say. I appreciate the conversation. Appreciate it, Ryan. Thanks so much. You know, I, I just feel, you know, I'm in the process, maybe to inject a piece of popular culture here. I'm reading Freeway Rick Ross's biography, autobiography. Uh, the guy who is, you know, as people know, uh, kind of, it was this terrible mix of the CIA, the Iran-Contra affair, and him, of course, being the largest crack dealer in America, literally made over a billion dollars. But what I enjoy about the book is this incredibly personal story about Rick Ross, as as you were saying, Ronnie, how people get involved with stuff that they had no idea that they were going to get involved with and how we we fail to understand that. I've been looking at this show on... uh, Wednesday night called Snowfall and it's kind of like about Rick Ross and the CIA and when we start looking at how the CIA was the cause of the crack epidemic in this country funding war America's wars we can only say that a lot of the stuff is even out of control of the drug dealers all of what we're doing right here and we've got to go to the source of some of the bigger problems again which America doesn't do as it steadily declines. It's funny because one of my girlfriends Dr. Deborah for Holden talks about that she's a public health researcher she says when the sa- the stage is set for something the play will go play on like mm-hmm. if you're setting the stage for a particular thing you the actors are going to play in that stage and we try to pretend that people have free agency but the stage is being set for a particular kind Kind of play, and she talks about that in public health outcomes. I just it just reminded That's me of true. that. The stage is set a certain way. Let me go to the officer. Has called back. Let's see what he has to say. Four one zero three one nine eighty eight eighty eight. Officer Mike Jones, you're on the air. Welcome. Hey, good morning, late. Good morning, panel. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, okay, um, I've been a Baltimore City Police Officer for twenty years. I am a master level social worker. You all are hitting the nail <laughs> on the head, especially the sister that talked about. Uh, issues regarding pro-social skills, more decision-making, anger management, uh, improving the school setting. This thing is by design. And again, I'm saying this by heart. I, I grew up in the city, and as a child growing up in Baltimore City, unfortunately, crime was cheap recreation for me as a child. It was unfortunate when my brother got killed back in 97, I decided instead of continuing the violence and retaliating against the individuals that killed my brother, I became a Baltimore City police officer. And as an African-American male, I see what's going on, and I truly believe that as far as the school settings, uh, um, uh, poor uh, double-digit unemployment, it all goes hand in hand. Mm -hmm. And what happens is the black community becomes demonized. There is not a lot of, there is not a, a, a statistic differential between black-on-black crime, and white-on-white crime. And what happens is we become demonized, and and unfortunately, myself and my co-workers uh, uh, use, uh, use black-on-black crime as a justification for these stop taxes with lease of Fourth Amendment civil rights violations. Mm-hmm. You, but the sister hit the nail on the head. We... The, we need to change the narrative that is being fed to us, making us look bad as blacks. All of this is the same. Baltimore, Detroit, Chicago, Atlanta, Memphis, St. Louis. I cannot idly stand by and not, and not, and I am so glad that you gave me, giving me this opportunity to say this. 
Thank you, bro. Officer Jones, I'm glad you called in. You know, you made me think of, uh, I went the other night, the last week I went to a, was invited to a community meeting in Forest Park at School 64, which was my old elementary school. Um, and um, uh, when I went there, um, and Kim Truhart invited me to come to the meetings, I was went, I wanted to check out the neighborhood and listen to people. There were, it was interesting to me. It was a very interesting community meeting. Without going into detail, there were two, black, two officers there. And there were a really interesting dollar between those two officers and this community. The interesting thing to me, both the officers were black. Both the officers grew up in the city. Both the officers lived in Baltimore City. One very close by in Gwen Oak, close to the Forest Park neighborhood. And you could feel the difference in terms of their attitude about, we, you know, here's our cell number, call me if you need me, I'll come to the house, we'll talk about it, a, we'll try to, you know, and, and it was a really different way that they approached the world. Mm-hmm. And um, there are white officers like that too, I'm sure, but what I'm saying is that, that we, 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 we can't discount right. the power of having officers living in the community, right. in the city, from the city, who understand what's going on. But what we don't ways, want those right? officers to do is to be contaminated by a system that will crush them if they started to speak out against those who don't share that or who are. That's the problem. It's like we know that they're, quote, good officers, but the system is such that even if those good officers start to say, hey, y'all need to stop doing this, they will be ostracized, criticized, and sometimes Put aside, and and that then threatens their livelihood, and then they have decisions to make. So let let's not move. The system supports the system. That's, right. that's all I got. Let's go. Oh, do you want to say something real quick, Lester? Jump into that before we hit the phones again. Go ahead. No, that's all right. You but sure? Just, just uh, I'm glad the brother called. Yeah. Four one zero three one nine eighty eight eighty eight. Let us go to. I'm trying to look at my f- board here. Let's go to um, Mitchell. You're on the air. Yeah, hi, good morning. Hi, Mitchell. Mitch! Yeah, hi, good morning. I'm enjoying the program this morning. I appreciate the effort and the knowledge that you guys are putting out. Um, I was listening to, to, you, to you guys, and I had an idea that I wanted to put out there that I think might be helpful, not only just for Baltimore, but in general as we try to address a lot of the problems that our country face in so many different levels. I think that uh, the way people think is very important. And I think that the way we think can often determine how we behave. And I was thinking, like for Baltimore, for example, is it possible to create a Baltimore television station that only deals with issues or concerns or, or present Baltimore to try to begin to, to shape the thinking of the citizens? I believe that we begin to talk about dialogue and talk about the problems in Baltimore talk about the good things of Baltimore, give organizations a chance to come out and talk about what they're doing, to begin to create a culture or a mindset where we're focusing on Baltimore and thinking about how we can make it better as a whole community by tuning into a radio, pro- or not a radio program, but a television program where people can uh, you know, participate and get information and knowledge. I mean, just... There's somebody who's been in media for a while now. I mean, TV stations cost a lot of money to start. Um, I do think that with a proper organization, planning, and some backing, you could start something that's more akin to a podcast TV um, network that could really address issues and have been, be much more open, especially since most of the people 40 and under don't even own a television set anymore. You know, they, they don't? Uh-huh. No, 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 they, they don't. They, people, younger people, everything they, they, they every, every 20 or 30 something I talk to, people no more. <laughs> they, they get most of their news and ideas and movies from the internet, from their phones, from their laptop, from whatever little device they carry, and never turn on a TV set, nor a radio, or a radio, or a radio station. They download what they want to hear. They want to hear this podcast, they'll download it. They want to find this music, they'll download it. You know, it's a different, a different world. Even for old men like you, right, Lester? <laughs> yes, that's I, I got my. I got. I finally broke down and bought a TV for the Olympics. But yeah, I mean, basically, yeah, I right. wow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, it's a different world. I, I think. can't see on them little devices. I need. <laughs> but you know, you got things you can plug it into your t- to a TV right, screen and watch it at home. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Right. That's right. So you know, there we are. Four one zero three. But real quick, real go ahead, quick. go ahead, please I mean, go, go, so, go, 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 go. 
Yeah, so one way to think about that is, I mean, it doesn't take much to establish kind of a YouTube channel, right? Right. So, and then and then to get people who are already doing quote unquote positive stuff, who are already generating the content you want, you know, through their phones and the like, to post it on a channel, and then and then as that thing develops, to grow it uh, organically into the thing that you're talking about, Mark, and then from there to something else. Right. I mean, it can happen. I think there's going to be different models that have to be thought of. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I think things are just changing that rapidly. Can we, get, we have time for one more call, maybe one or two. We'll see if we can get them in here. 410-319-8888. Who's been holding on the longest here? Let me go to Robert. You're on the air. Me? Oh, hi. Hey, Robert. Oh, how you doing? Very well. Well, I guess I'm glad to get the call in one more time. Cause I understand you're you're going to be gone. Well, we're going to be gone from this terrestrial <laughs> station, unfortunately. We don't, but 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 we will be alive and well in podcast and at the Center for Emerging Media and at SteinerShow.org. We're still going to be rolling and and uh, stirring it up and doing our work. Okay, well, I'll be looking. I'll be looking <laughs> out for that then. Okay, all right. I just want to draw together a couple of things that you guys were already saying. I'm not inventing anything new. Um, on the one hand, you're saying, for example, that these initiatives like the uh, people with, you know, no shooting this weekend, that that's well and good. But at the same time, you understand there's got to be a certain connectedness with, with the larger issues. And I'd just like to suggest there's an historical basis for uh, viewing things in terms of uh, looking at the, uh, the, these, these things in terms of the larger issues. And I just so happened was looking over some address that uh, Dr. King was given. He happened to mention that uh, in Montgomery, during the Montgomery bus boycott, uh, as a result of the organizing there and the strengthening of this sense of community and solidarity, you saw a drop, a 65% drop in the black crime rate. I think it's very interesting. Uh, what people call black-on-black -black crime, or as far as I'm saying white-on-white crime or any other, is a kind of dysfunction, and I think that oppression breeds dysfunction. So it seems to me that in the long run, if you want to address the issue of crime, you have to address it in the context of the larger picture of the social injustices and the social dislocations which are breeding it. And, and Robert, I hate to interrupt, but we, 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 I didn't realize we were up against the clock, but, but I know who this is. This is Dr. Robert Burt. Uh, philosopher and teacher at Bowie State University. So, and we should get you on the air here before the terrestrial end of our work <laughs> winds down. And I just want to thank the three of our guests here because the three of you mean a great deal to me Aww. as thinkers and as human beings. And uh, that you could come on the air here before we roll is, is, it means a great deal. So, yeah. Dr. Lester Spence and Dr. Ray Wimbush, Dr. Ray, Ronnie Ellington, good to have the three of you thank here in studio this hour. Yeah, I'm really, really, morning. really sorry um, that I wasn't able to be there in person. Well, I'm we sorry. got next week, brother, if you're back. So. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm back tomorrow. All right, cool. And when we take a break, we come back. We're going to be looking at the rise in black-owned rest, black restaurants in Baltimore, what that means. It's very exciting. It tastes good, too. Stay with us.